It's good to have you back, John. You'll notice that there are three roses on the communion table. And perhaps you've seen in the bulletin that we had three babies born on July 5th. And indeed, we're missing a rose because we had another baby born on July 6th. So we have a bit of a baby boomlet going on in the congregation, which is not all bad. We have four baptisms at the second service. What a day. It's good to have you all here. For those who have been here the last two weeks or who have listened to my sermons, you might be glad that we've finally climbed out of the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. While the beginning of the chapter 11, we've moved out of the second of Matthew's two major teaching blocks, the Sermon on Mission. One of my favorite commentators for Matthew's Gospel, Dale Brunner, divides the Gospel into two, calling chapters 1 through 12 the Christ book, and chapters 13 to 28, the church book. He notes in the final two chapters of the Christ book, we are presented with a portfolio of photographs of the person of Christ. Having heard Jesus' word, seen his works, and leaned into his mission, we are now prepared to investigate the final mystery of his person. Who is this one? who teaches and acts this way? Chapters 11 and 12 answer this question. And in chapter 11, there are three major paragraphs. The first long paragraph revolves around John the Baptist and teaches all in all that John is the forerunner of the Christ and that Jesus is the Christ. The second shorter paragraph presents Jesus in his office as judge. And the final one, Jesus invites the heavy laden to himself and stands there primarily as Savior. Thus chapter 11 teaches that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the past, the coming judge of the future, and the gracious Savior in the present. Let us turn now to our reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 19 and 25 through 30. Hear the word of God. But what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There can hardly be a more inviting invitation in all of Scripture. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus speaks to the new mom and dad up for the middle of the night feeding, to the anxious teen, to the bone-weary one in the sandwich generation trying to care for aging parents. The invitation is gentle, caring, welcoming, not demanding. He speaks humbly, including all. I didn't check, but I bet Clarence Jordan's The Cotton Patch Gospel that recasts the stories of Jesus and the letters of Peter and Paul into language in the culture of mid-20th century Southern dialect renders this rest all y'all. But what amazes me is how many people turn him down. Have you ever noticed that? As a kid, I learned from my dad how to put in long days. As a judge, he'd often go back to night court or be on 24-hour duty for two-week stretches, especially over the holidays. Be out working at the community theater, helping run East Hills Civic Society, and being active in community politics. Our family hymn, and I'm not kidding about this, our family hymn was come labor on, you who dares to stand idle. And one of Pop's favorite Bible verses was from Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her food in the summer, gathers her sustenance in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and want like an armed man. He used to say that his only verse he remembered was Jesus wept, but I'll tell you what, he had Proverbs 6 down. <laughs> Proverbs looks to nature for a compelling lesson. In case you don't know what a sluggard is, the New Revised Standard translates the word lazy bones. Go to the hard-working ant, O lazy bones, and learn your lesson. Work hard. Don't ever sit still. Calvinists didn't have to invent the hard work ethic. They found it in their Bibles. But in the Bible, there's also the invitation to rest. According to the Greek dictionary, to rest is to cease from movement of labor in order to recover or collect one's strength. Now, we don't need a dictionary to tell us that. We already know what it is, but we don't do it very well, do we? As Jesus suggested, this is a matter of the soul. Come to me, he said, and I will give you rest for your souls. The soul is the part of us that is alive. It's the intersection of thought and feeling and breath, the the gift breathed into us by God's Spirit that makes us human. The soul is the, the wellspring of our dreams, the anchor of our imagination, the seat of passion and hope. The soul is the part of us that can be traumatized, anxious, and fearful. 
When the soul is wounded, one of the typical responses is to, to keep pushing on, persisting through, often in vain hope that if we just add another inch to the span of our day, we'll speed by or gloss over a deep wound that we're trying to avoid. I think about that every time I, I, I catch sight of a postcard of a Norman Rockwell painting I have taped up next to my computer. Shown in this painting is the, the magnificent entrance to St. Thomas Church on 53rd and 5th Avenue in New York City. Vaulted high above its carved Gothic doors are statues of the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs. And right in the center is Jesus Christ sitting on a throne at the right hand of God. There are many steps leading up to that, and on the sidewalk below the church move the busy throng of people amidst the noise and fumes of cars and taxis. The pastor of the church has just finished helping the, the sexton change the public bulletin board announcing the sermon title. The sign reads, Lift Up Thine Eyes. The irony, of course, is seen below. There a flurry of 20 pedestrians scurry by. With their heads down, they are focused on the filthy pavement rather than the open door of the church or the statues of the saints or the flying doves above them or even the people around them. Rockwell was likely making a statement on how easy it is to miss the, the world of beauty and community around us when we close ourselves off to God's grace. God has always been about trying to get us to lift up our eyes, to pay attention, to heed and hear the word God is speaking. Frederick Buechner, the writer and minister, reminds us of the, the length of God's effort. He writes, God never seems to weary of trying to get across to us. Word after word, God tries to search for the right word. When the creation itself doesn't seem to say it right, sun, moon, stars, all of it, God tried flesh and blood. God tried saying it in Noah, but Noah was a drinking man. God tried saying it in Abraham, but Abraham was a little too Mesopotamian with all those wives and whiskers. Tried David, but David was too pretty for his own good. Tried Moses, but Moses himself was trying too hard. Toward the end of his rope, God trying to say it in John the Baptist with his locust and honey and hellfire preaching. And you get the feeling that John might almost have worked except that he lacked something small but crucial like a sense of the ridiculous and a balanced diet. So God tried once more. Jesus is the mat just, the key, very word of God. The word became flesh, John said. Of all flesh, this flesh. Jesus, as the word made flesh, means take it or leave it. In this life, death, life, God finally manages to say what God is and what human is. That's what, that's what Matthew is pointing to in our lesson. Because of whom Jesus is, he is the one who can give our souls rest. We find that by coming to him, 
for he is a savior. But some might ask, we can't see him. How do we come to him? I think we come by, a, by paying attention to his grace. We come by listening to Jesus say that every one of us has inestimable value. We come by chewing on his promise that we do not live by bread alone, but by the life-giving words that come from the mouth of God. We come by observing the birds of the air and how they are cared for by an unseen benevolence. We come by admiring the wildflowers which bring beauty to life's path, and we did not even plant them. Life is all about grace. What Eugene Peterson has called the unforced rhythms of grace, the invisible goodness and favor which give us our lives in the first place. If we're convinced that life is only weariness and burden, then we're missing how everything really is gift, a generous gift. Being yoked to Christ reminds us that we should, what well, we should already know, that we are not the center of the universe. The world does not revolve around us it would be better for us to orbit around the one who made it all, the one who fills it with life and brings it such abundance. We're invited to approach the world with awe, with wonder. You've heard me say before that it's always a, a challenge to pick the bulletin cover. I started this week with a very specific request for Chris I wanted to have the bulletin cover be a field filled with fireflies. How hard could that be? You can't imagine. When we used to live just over the Williamson County line in Horseshoe Bend on the other side of Edwin Warner Park, on summer nights after faith and film class or a, a meeting, I would, I, would, I would drive into the park, and I'd go all the way to the back where that large field is, and I'd pull out of the trunk a camp chair, and I'd set it up, and I'd spend 10, 15, maybe a half an hour just watching the fireflies. There's nothing I've, I've done that just lowers my blood pressure and lets me be amazed at the grace and goodness of God. Well, no fireflies, so what I did get was a, a picture that looks very like a, a, a picture that I have in my office of a lake in the Adirondacks that I spent time on last summer when I was on sabbatical. It was a place where I could just see the wonder of creation. And every time I look at that picture uh, across my office, I remember the gift of rest, reflecting on the unforced rhythms of grace. Our visioning committee will meet again this week for some uh, real significant work where we'll take all that we have been working on and try to boil it down into some, just a couple of bullet points for us to begin to focus on going forward. And one of the things that we've talked about a little bit are, are spiritual practices that might sustain a post-COVID church. 
And one of those spiritual practices, I believe, is for us to engage beauty and delight and other non-quantitatives, things that just inspire us to, to wonder and awe at God's goodness. Presbyterian minister Tom R. recounts an encounter that took place across the street in a public park from where his church was situated. On his walk from church into town, he would often encounter people in the park asking for spare change or money to buy food. One such occasion, a park person spotted him and followed him as he made his way into a local coffee shop. The man addressed him, Sir, may I come in with you? Sure, he responded. And they went to the counter and R ordered his coffee and then told the person at the register he'd pay for whatever his friend wanted. The man responded that he just wanted a, a cup of water, but then put down money and said he would pay for R's coffee. I don't understand, R responded. You're buying my coffee? The man insisted, you're, you're the pastor of that church across the street, right? Yes. You have a really nice choir, right? Yes, we do. I used to sing in the choir when I was in college. You were in college? Yes, until my mom got sick and I, I had to drop out. But I love the music and your custodian lets me in to the balcony when the choir is rehearsing on Thursday night and I, I lie down on the pew and listen. Reb, it's the best hour in my week. For an hour, I'm surrounded by beauty. Don't you love it when moments come along and you're surrounded by beauty? So I just want to buy you a cup of coffee and ask you to thank the singers at your church. Lift up your hearts. The liturgy invites us. Lift up your eyes. Pay attention to the unforced rhythms of grace that God gives as a gift. Wonder. Pay attention. Experience awe. Notice beauty. Notice the beauty of creation. Calvin calls it the theater of God's glory. And so often we walk by like those folks in Rockwell's painting, heads down, too busy, too distracted to notice. My friend Chris Curry, pastor of the St. Charles Avenue Presbyterian Church, New Orleans, points out that at the heart of the Christian community are those non-quantifiable moments when worship, communion, koinonia, fellowship, and the life together we share in Christ cause us to lose ourselves in something beautiful, in something so self-involving that we forget the tedium of our own tendencies to take our spiritual temperature or measure the analytics or excess success. Some of you no doubt saw and read, as I did, Nashville's own Margaret Renkel's beautiful essay in the New York Times, The Nature of Joy, that's a celebration of her garden, it reminded me, as nothing else has, of Annie Dillard's beautiful book, 
pilgrim of Tinker Creek. Lifting up her eyes to the beauty of her garden and the dangers of all the animals who live in it face, she observes in conclusion of the essay, I think the ever-present threat my wild neighbors live with must tell us something about the nature of joy. The fallen world, peopled by predators and disease and the relentlessness of time, shot through with every kind of suffering, is not the only world. We also dwell in Eden. And every morning, the world is trying to renew itself again. Why should we not try to glory in it too? Indeed, we should. God invites us to. And Jesus offers us the chance of learning the unforced rhythms of grace by being yoked to him. Thanks be to God for such a gracious invitation. Amen.